taking a break from our study in Samuel, but you'll see from the text that David is ever-present in Isaiah 9 as God continues to be faithful to his promise. You need a Bible. There is one provided for you in the pew. Our text is found on page 680, Isaiah chapter 9. Just a brief summary and reminder about Advent. Advent is about locating our hope in the right place. And locating your hope in the right place is the key to a flourishing life. Without the right hope, you cannot sustain or flourish in this life. You'll be worn down and then worn out. And it's very clear that if God is not central to that hope, you eventually will find yourself as we find those that Isaiah is writing to with a diminished and desperation about their lives. But God comes to us the same way he came to the people of God in Isaiah's time And God, Yahweh, says, I'm a deliverer, and I will deliver you through the Son of Hope. We'll see his name, his exalted name, that will be fulfilled some 700 years later in the coming of Jesus. But it will place us once again, as we find ourselves every Sunday and every sermon, in a dilemma of sorts, a dilemma of challenging us to ask, what do we really believe? And where are we locating our hope? Isaiah's text tells us that we can locate our hope in the Son of Hope, this Jesus Christ. First, beginning in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her, speaking of Israel, who was in anguish. If you'll notice in chapter 8, the last verse of chapter 8, they will look, speaking of Israel, to the earth, But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there'll be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Look at the tenses of the verbs there. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness, past tense, have now seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice Before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior is in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, 
and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of God. Thanks be to you, O God. Let's pray together. Father, open our eyes that we might see marvelous truths found in your word, truths that reveal to us that hope has a name and hope has come to visit us and hope is present for all that trust in Jesus Christ. If there's anyone here today that has not located their hope in salvation that comes in Jesus Christ, we pray that today would be the day of salvation. This we pray in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. George Friedrich Handel was a German Lutheran and you know him as a composer as well as one who directed operas and the oratoria. At age 25, he moved from Germany to England and was busy writing and directing operas. His friend Charles Jennings, a devout Anglican, approached him with some scripture text. And those scripture text he asked Handel to put to music. Now, Jennings' concern for the church in Europe was that the European church had embraced deism. Deism is a recognition that God is a creator, but that God is distant and that God is not involved in the affairs of man. In fact, deism denies the virgin birth, the incarnation, the coming of God the Son, Jesus Christ, into human flesh, the efficacy of the death of Christ on the cross, and the resurrection, the coming of the Holy Spirit, denies Christianity. But deism also promotes the idea that man has enough answers to solve his own problems. It's a man-centered approach to religion. Of course, if you've heard the Messiah, there's two portions or sections. The first section is the section that focuses on Christmas or the incarnation. The second section is on the resurrection. Two anchored truths that anchor our hope. They tell a dramatic story of a rescue operation where God comes to save people from their sin and from Satan himself and from death itself. And I love, probably my favorite, is the song that's tied to this verse here. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. We can't solve our own problems, but we can live in solid hope. Martin Luther said that Everything that is done in this world is done by people who are searching for hope. And I would agree that whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, each of you has a strategy where you locate your hope. A strategy that says that if this works out, or if this could change, or if I could just have this, 
If I was just a little thinner, if I was just a little smarter, if I just had a little more money, if I just had that job, if I could just get out of this marriage, if I could just get married, if I could just fill in the blank. We all have a place, an idea in our heads where we've located what we consider the source of hope. But like Israel, surely we find ourselves hoping in the wrong things. I'll ask you this morning as you listen to the sermon, where have you located your hope? And for believers, I'll ask you to renew your sense that the coming of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ for you creates an expectancy of hope based on God's person and his promises. An expectation of hope based not on our circumstances and not on our efforts or diligence, but on the person of God and the promise of God. That's what we see not only in this text, but that's what we see throughout the scriptures. Now that word hope has lost a lot of strength in our modern vernacular. We think hope is wishful thinking, we think hope is some sense of positivity or fate, that things will just go our way if we think good and happy thoughts. Maybe I'll catch a break. Maybe luck, Lady Luck will smile on me. And yet, if we've lived very long, we know this life is full of disappointment. This life is full of hardship. This life is full of suffering. If we're honest, we would admit that our hope, in a shallow sense, has been diminished. You see this in the text as this is 300 years after Israel's greatest kings, David and Solomon, have failed not only their families, but also their nation, and have proven that they are not God's answer for the hope of Israel. You see in the text that Israel is facing a kind of terror, a darkness, a gloom, chapter 8, 22 says, and they look to the earth. Sounds a lot like us, doesn't it? That we look around and think that there's an answer in an earthly sense that can bring us a sense of protection and a sense of peace. The text goes on to say that they are in anguish. That word is often used to describe the anguish in the Old Testament of being barren, not able to have children, or the anguish of losing someone you love. But it also says that they were facing the death shadow. They were in terror. Assyria to the north had been pummeling their nation and it says that uh, the um, Galilee in that northern area was facing the invasion of the army of Assyria. God promises that they will actually survive the overtaking of the Assyrians. But in chapters 45 through 66, we're told they will be taken into exile. And they have a fear as the death shadow hangs over their heads. 
If you're a believer, you shouldn't live in the death shadow. Jesus has moved into the death shadow and taken upon himself the death that we deserve. But you may experience gloom or anguish or terror. This world is an unsafe place. It says why, the author here, Isaiah, says it's because we're in bondage. We are powerless to break the power over the evil in our lives or the evil around us. And we're powerless to direct ourselves. And we're like an animal that's yoked to a path that takes us towards evil and towards gloom. What is our hope? How do we escape negative intrusive thoughts that tell us it's not worth it? That tell us I want to give up. I want to get out of this marriage. I want to change my circumstances. The darkness and gloom that fills our hearts. Well, this text says that Yahweh reminds the people of God that he is a deliverer and that he promises hope. The language here is startling, actually. He's saying that your salvation has already arrived. Your new David is already on the scene. Your new exodus and the new roadway out of your darkness is already present. He's saying that the new creation is dawning. The language would almost make you stop and say, well, that's not what my circumstances say. Everything around me would say that darkness and gloom and anguish is the only option that I have. But Isaiah says, God has sent a deliverer. And this deliverer has a name. He is the son of hope. And you see these names, they're coupled. They're really four names that are coupled in two descriptors. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He says that hope resides in this name. The New Testament tells us that when Gabriel arrived, he told Mary that there will be a child born. And Gabriel announced that his name would be Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. Paul says this is the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is not only 300 years since David's, Solomon's failures. This is 700 years until Gabriel arrives, and yet the prophet speaks as if it's in the present. I'll say it this way. He's not saying there is hope waiting for you in the future. He's saying hope has arrived from the future. He's speaking eternally as if something is already true, and we know that it's true. For that baby was born. And Advent, which means to come, 
is the reality that he has broken into this dark world. And it says in the book of John, light has shined in the darkness, and the darkness could not comprehend it. And we are told that Jesus declared, I am the light of the world. And that Jesus spoke into the darkness as the deliverer to bring about salvation. He offers forgiveness for our failures. He offers redemption for our rebellion. He offers cleansing for our corruption. He offers salvation for sinners. When you begin to read the book of Isaiah, the first chapter speaks of Israel's sins. They are described as not trusting the Lord. They turned from God. They were trusting in themselves, horses and chariots. But what's so striking about chapter 1, God then says to Israel, Come let us reason together, says the Lord. Now this is the holy God who has been trampled upon in superficial worship, has been ignored in trust and hope, and he arrives and he makes the invitation. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red as crimson, they shall be as wool. Here it says, unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. God will give forgiveness in Jesus Christ. God will offer salvation to undeserving people. It's stunning that God offers forgiveness to those who have rebelled against him. But I love how verse 1 contrasts the state that Israel's in to the promise that God offers. Look in verse 1. It's coming off of chapter 8, verse 22. It says that Israel has looked to the earth, and all they've beheld is distress and darkness and gloom, which has led to anguish and thrust them into thick darkness. That's a pretty bad situation. But the, ver the, the word there, the descriptor says, but God. The NIV says the word nevertheless. They have rebelled. They have refused to trust God. They've tried to find hope in their own strength, in their own pathways. And it says nevertheless. <laughs> nevertheless, when we fail God. Nevertheless, when we ignore God. Nevertheless, when we fret and when we worry and when we drift and when we experiment with sinful behaviors. Nevertheless, God shows up. God speaks. God brings salvation. God offers a son of hope. He gives his best gift. When you read Isaiah 9, you have to think of John 3.16, don't you? Isaiah 9, where it says, Unto us a son is given. Surely John was thinking about that when he heard Jesus' words and he wrote down, 
those powerful words in John 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Here, Isaiah describes this son that's been given. And I mentioned it's four couplets of four descriptors. He's the wonderful counselor. Think about all the plans and purposes we make, all the decisions we make trying to find the right pathway. Well, he is the wonderful counselor. I said in the 830 service that to young people, discovering God's will is should be on the minds of a young believer. But God's will is what you would choose if you knew everything that God knows about you and about your future. You would always obey him. You would always trust him. You would always say yes to him. Why? Because he's the wonderful counselor. You'll turn to the one who knows everything about you and your future and says, trust me, hope in me. I'm your wonderful counselor, but I'm also the mighty God. That's a military term. He's speaking of the one who defeats your enemies, who's victor over your foes. The Bible says that Satan is our enemy, and he comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. And yet Jesus not only faced Satan in the wilderness, but in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross, And he took our place for us so that all of death's darkness could be absorbed by him so that God's light could be shown to us. He's the mighty God that defeats even the enemy of death. He's the everlasting father. I don't think he's referring to the Trinity here. He's saying that our savior is like an everlasting father, a good father that gives good gifts to their children, that's aware of the needs of their children, and it's everlasting. He'll always look after you. He'll always have you on his mind. You know, Thanksgiving is a time for families to be together, and we had three generations of herons in our house. One was a two-year-old, and one was a three-month-old. There was 10 other herons and Norton's in the house, but I want you to know everybody had their eye on the two-year-old and on the three-month-old to make sure that they were cared for, to look after, to make sure that they had what they needed, the joy that those children brought into our home. It was as if the whole household was a father and a mother looking after those little ones. Well, that's what The son of hope is. He's an everlasting father. And he's the prince of peace. The governments of this world bring war. Jesus brings everlasting peace. And it says here that it will be given to us. I love this verse in verse 6. Just the imagery here. It says, the government shall be upon his shoulders. And I think often the reason why we lack hope is that all the burdens of our life fall on our own shoulders. The burdens of our family, the burdens of our past failures, the burdens of our future. This text says that the government of all 
of the world's burdens rest on his shoulders. I love that picture. God carries us even on his shoulders. And what rests on us? It says God's favor rests on us if we belong to Jesus. Think about what Jesus said in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, burdened down. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am gentle and humble of heart. You will find rest for your souls. This text tells us why we can find rest. The government of your life is on his shoulders and he places favor on your shoulders. What a mighty God. Well, how can we live in this assurance? This is the believer's dilemma, isn't it? We look around at our circumstances. We think about our past and we think a failed marriage. We think a loved one who has died. We think all the people that I've hurt and disappointed. We think about all the poor decisions that we make. And we say, there's nothing to hope for. Hope has been extinguished out of my life. That's not what this text says. This text says, and to me verse 7 is just a, it's just an ocean of beautiful mercy pouring over my soul. It says, the zeal of the Lord of the host will accomplish it. It doesn't say that we're going to accomplish it. Our strategies and our efforts to make ourselves better, we're not going to accomplish it. It says, the zeal of the Lord of the host will accomplish this. He delights to rescue us. He delights to relieve us of our burdens. He wants us to live in hope. So what about you this morning? What would it mean to live in hope as a believer in Christ? I think the first thing it means is that our expectations for the future would be set in Jesus' favor. You can smile at the future because you belong to Jesus. He didn't just promise hope for you waiting in the future. Jesus has come into our world. Jesus has taken on the death that we deserve. He's forgiven us. He sent the Holy Spirit. He's ruling and reigning in heaven, and he's promised to come again. So the expectation for your future should be bright. It also gives you strength in the waiting. And isn't that the hard part? When we're waiting, but we're called to trust. And trusting God is exercising our spiritual muscle, our spiritual muscle of hope, and of making choices that align with what God has told us. I'll tell you what I've seen in this emerging generation. I've seen that you're inundated with a message, and it's really a deceitful message, but the message is that you cannot feel good about your life until the feelings on your inside are happy. And it really is a cruel, cruel expectation to put on young people. 
It's a therapeutic message that says until you feel better about yourself, until you feel better about your decisions, you're worthless. That's what deism says. That's what nihilism says. I want you to know that the Bible says we can have hope no matter how we feel about ourselves. Martin Lloyd Jones, pastor in England, once said that most of our problems are the result of the fact that we listen to ourselves rather than talking to ourselves. We listen to this voice that says you're not worthy of love, that says you're not worthy of hope, that says you've made too many mistakes, that says that God or your family has given up on you. Negative intrusive thoughts that make you feel like giving up. That's not what we see in Advent. That's not what we read in this text. We're assured that Jesus has come and that he will come again. I was talking to some those after the 830 service. When I came to Christ years ago, there was a lot of focus on the second coming of Christ, that Christ would return and the hope that comes from Christ's return. I think we don't think enough about the return of Christ. You know, we're not going to make this world a utopia until Christ returns. And though we should seek to shine light and serve others, there will, no be, there will be no utopia until Jesus returns. Our hope is set first in the second coming. But it's also said in the first coming that he came and sent the Spirit to be with us in our suffering. We don't suffer alone. And he's going to form us and push us to trust him even when we can't answer the difficulty of why. As I've pastored for many years now, I would say that most of us at some point in our spiritual pilgrimage hit a wall. And we hit a wall because we cannot answer why. We say, God, we started on the right track. We did what you told us to. We don't understand why we find ourselves in this dilemma. It's really the challenge of trust because our hope is otherworldly. Our hope is in a promise and a person that is outside of our own selves. I was thinking back to my own life and the times when I felt desperate, like what we were reading here in Isaiah 9. There have been several times that I felt desperate. I felt out on a limb and alone. I felt that I had no hope even in God. And most of those times were centered around issues with my family and issues with my vocation or my calling. What about you? Where have you found that you've experienced the most desperation? It's usually about issues related to family. When my children were very small, we only had two at the time, I just began to feel overwhelmingly paralyzed by fear. And I felt like I'm not going to be able to provide for them financially. They're going to have needs. And I was on that, at that time working for a Christian ministry campus outreach. And we, it was a faith-based ministry. We raised our support. And I just thought, there's no way that we're going to have the ability to meet the needs of our children. 
And I remember about that time I got a call from a friend of mine who's a businessman who offered me a position to join him as a partner in a business. And he mentioned a salary that made me at least feel that I have hope in providing for my family. I wrestled with the Lord. I talked to my wife as we prayed about it. She said that she would support me no matter what I decided. And it wouldn't be disrespectful to the Lord if we decided to leave the ministry. But I remember praying and praying and not feeling any relief till one night. It's as if the Lord met me in my own words. He said, Mike, I call you to trust me. And that means that you're going to have to walk out on limbs. But I want you to walk out on limbs that I'm holding. There's not a pathway in this life that can avoid trust in God. And when you try to find that pathway, you leave the path of God. He will call us to trust him. I just said to him, Lord, I want to know <laughs> it's the limb that you're holding up. I want to know that it's your desire for me. That's the dilemma that we live in today. What about you? Where do you need to be reminded that your hope is already secure? Your hope has already come in the Son of Hope. I pray that this Advent, it will be a journey once again for you to discover, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government is on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for each person here, each person that meets a particular battle of faith, and I ask you to meet them in that battle. I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here that has not met you in the hope of the gospel, Lord, that you would give them the light of faith to trust in you. And I pray, Father, that as a body, you would teach us what it means to walk in trust. Thank you so much for a congregation of people who long to trust you, even when we don't have all the answers, even when we haven't done it right, even when we don't get a do-over in some situations. Lord, free us to believe that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.